You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. I world build because I think the world could and should be gentler for all people. My name is Hannah Porter. I'm Marshall Ryan Mariska. I'm Cass Morris. And I'm Rowena Miller. And this is episode 102, Side Dishes and Second Helpings, Serving Up Some Food Culture. Welcome back, listeners. We are incredibly excited to have a special guest here today. Um, and I would just like to toss it right over to you and let you introduce yourself to us. Hi, I'm thrilled to be on your wonderful podcast. My name is Hannah Porter. Um, I write no- novels and plays. Uh, my second book, The Thick and the Lean, just came out yesterday from Saga Press. Mm-hmm. And it looks gorgeous, by the way. I know. They did such a good job with that co- cover. It's gorgeous. And remind us your first book as well. I wrote The, Se- the Seep um, back in 2020, which probably has some of my favorite world building that I've ever made that's about a gentle but very paradigm-shifting alien invasion that challenges what it means to be human. Uh, And part of what this disembodied alien kind of hive mind consciousness does uh, is that it creates like emotional and psychic bonds between all things so anything that you touch you sense its um history and what it's been through so there's some very fun parts of um people punching a door and then you have to apologize to the door (laughs) as you should i'm I'm midwestern i do that anyway <laughs> I'm in your great part of the country n- now. Boy, people are very pol- pol- polite. I'm an East an East an East Coast <laughs> Jew, and I'm more um, I take more more of a tone sometimes. <laughs> There's a scene in this this seep, which is kind of a food scene too, which is I know our topic for today, which I'm very keen to talk about. But there's a scene of a woman sitting on a bench with a bucket of little, like, minnows. And she's devouring them, like, one by one as she cries. And this scene is never explained. And uh, some people really hate it. And some people think that it's great. So... It's kind of become like a fish, 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 fish test, uh, a fish litmus test. test. It's one of my favorite parts. I certainly know I would be crying <laughs> if I were sitting there eating a bucket of minnows. Yeah, but also she's feeling all of the pain. She's doing it to herself. <laughs> kind of makes me think of like playing a song again and again that makes you cry. Making the choice to wallow yes. in... Right. in- in your morning, yeah, no, I get Wallowing it. Wallowing with your minnows. I'm, I'm, I'm a triple I'm cancer, so I crying is like an an, an art. I'm great at it. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little bit more about the thick and the lean. Yeah, so the kind of pitch, the concept is: what if there was a culture, and it's not the entire place, but it's the dominant culture of this planet where sexual pleasure was very kind of like public, um, very ordinary, and food pleasure was highly taboo. So um, it starts off with a girl in a very closed what you later learn is kind of like a cult community. And she has this like deep longing 
where she feels like she needs to cook food and serve it to people. And she doesn't really know like what that is or what it would look like to follow that impulse. And then the like book kind of blooms out. And like, I really just love the classic sci-fi taboo switch thing of like, what if on this planet, like what we thought was so normal is the switch, like very twilight zony. But I feel like when you are committed to world building and you follow that, it's not just kind of a one trick pony thing or just like a shocking twist. It really then does impact the construction of you know, churches and theology and reality TV and commerce and the supply chain and who grows your food and what sort of rights do they have. And the book gets into like body politics and um, land right movements, big agriculture. There's some nods to something like a Monsanto. So it was really fun to start to think about. Um, but the like germ of this, the like seed bloomed from like my own thoughts just about like diet culture and purity and culture. And when those two langu- languages seem to borrow things from one another about like guilty pleasure, a cheat day, my like can of seltzer telling me that I shouldn't feel bad about drinking that. (laughs) Yeah. That kind of stuff. I I love how that's like one like element that you're exactly right. Like it's going to affect almost everything else about this culture, right? That you tip over that one thing and suddenly everything else is affected. I'm sorry, I love that you said reality TV because I'm like, how many of the shows that we watch would be like totally taboo? Like on Netflix, Nailed It would have a completely different meaning. Yeah. Like <laughs> that would be a completely different <laughs> show. <laughs> that would be a very different could... show. <laughs> no, I was just thinking like network TV would be porn, but like the parts where it's like, you know, it's late and we're getting risque. It's like somebody's going to like just put their fork into the food and maybe lift a bite up, but you're no. not going to see them put it in their mouth because we're not going to be that like, obscene. Like, I mean, no, come on. there's some like, Great British Bake Off is paper. Right, yeah, right. That's, you're yeah. going to stay to black dinner scenes. Totally. Oh my God. That's so smart. You made me think also just that, that idea of this woman who has this deep yearning to make food for people like that's in this culture that's 50 shades of gray that's you know that's that's, you know her being extremely kinky to the point of let me show you my secret kitchen yeah i have spoons no there's literally like a scene where she's touching kitchen tools on like a wall and she doesn't know what they're all called and she's like spatula and someone's like good job you've studied like you've passed the test yeah oh, i love it that's fantastic that's great i'm so refraining from saying good girl good girl there's some of that i, I mean a lot of the time i was like <laughs> there is uh some things like that no but it, it ties in so much to the central premise of this show which is choose don't presume and I feel like taboos are one of those things that it's very easy to presume because they're they're like baked into us in such a way. And so is what's quote unquote normal, right? And food is a thing that we structure our whole days around in our society, really. Like I I, I constantly feel like I'm just sort of feel like clocking from meal to meal because that's also like break time from work is the lunch break. And we structure so much around it. And if you upend that, it does change. It has so many other... Like, do you get a sex break in the middle of the day? That'd be amazing. <laughs> Can we institute that? I want that. <laughs> like, that'd be amazing. <laughs> but it does. It changes so many things that that when you're dealing with it, as you said, um, as world building, not just as a quick gimmick, so many implications. I mean, so much so that I was like, 
a lot of what gives our TV drama is a simmer of like, will they or won't they? And if anyone can at any point in time, like where is the tension? If, if it's the cultural equivalent of shaking hands. Absolutely. But I think we should talk about more food and food culture and culture by way of food, um, because I think it's fascinating and awesome. And I just, I mean, food is one of those touchstones in sci-fi fantasy. Like, you know, there are entire cookbooks of sci-fi fantasy foods, and we, you know, dive into this stuff. Are there any particular sci-fi fantasy worlds that you really enjoy the food or food culture or some element of the food in? I'm a Star Trek person. I, I read your Deep Space Nine article the other day. Did you? You are fucking living the dream. If someone's like, will you write about Deep Space Nine? Oof, that was so cool. I really love the food culture on that show. And I feel like they really connect to something in the way that people have their own food cultures from, you know, their homes and then they have the things about what they like about being part of this larger galactic commu- community you know the, the 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 fact that everyone on the senior staff has their own way that they like to drink the klingon coffee but we don't have a klingon on ds9 until what like season f- f- four but it's like a part of the culture. And I love that like the commander on that show, he's an avid home cook and he's grown up in a beautiful restaurant tradition in New, or- New, or- New Orleans. But when he's in a really good mood, he makes chicken paprikash. Like he has like a Hungarian food thing. And it's something that, when his son Jake comes home and sees that dad is cooking that, he knows that he's had a good day. I just feel like they do this braiding of the culture in a way that um, I feel like in the other Star Treks, which I'm not like a huge scholar about, but like, you know, Troy on Next Gen was really into chocolate because she's very soft and femme and into pleasure and stuff. And it's like, we all know and love chocolate. I love chocolate. Great. But like, <laughs> I don't need to see her eating chocolate or drinking a cup of chocolate as much as I do in that show. I just feel like the way that food and drink is treated is very smart in Deep Space Nine. And the other thing that I wanted to talk to you about, do you all know the movie Defending Your L- Life? Defending Your Life. I love that movie so that much. That movie's so yes. fucking weird. Yes. Oh my god. It is so weird. <laughs> so weird. But delightfully it's delightful. So. <laughs> if anyone has not, it's Alfred Brooks, Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep being funny. Oh yeah. She's so great in it. But it's this very corporate kind of 1980s concept of what heaven might be or like kind of like a purgatory before heaven. But the food between the afterlives where you have to go and like defend your choices. Part of what people there do is they gorge them themselves on like huge platters of pasta and shrimp and that kind of thing but there's these like ascended masters like people that have gone out of the cycle of um having to have human incarnated lives and the like food that they take is something that we would not know how to taste it's like repul- repulsive to the recently dead people, which I found very cool. Smart. I, if I remember correctly, the idea was that their food, because they're they are so now advanced, they can just control their taste buds. Yeah. So like, it doesn't matter what they eat oh. because they can make it taste however they want. But like the, the in the afterlife, the food is 
incredibly plentiful. It's all the best food you've ever had. And it doesn't affect you calorically right. at all. Yeah. So that you're like, you know, you can gorge yourself. And like, it's like, and also all the people who prepare food are like extremely happy to like, it's like, do you like pie? I'm going to give you nine pies. <laughs> <laughs> well, one time I did a psilocybin, psilocybin, the um, mushroom trip. And the mushrooms told me that the food that we all take in half of it is important in terms of like nutrition but the other half is all about the like energy of the people who made it so maybe the defending your life of people knew that well they are that tracks i mean with the world building of that movie the people who are there working are people who have advanced and moved on and yet come back to make to like run restaurants in the afterlife. I find that so cute. I would love to know what your food world building favorites are. Your food cultures. I mean, you already said Star Trek, and that is one of my favorites. Though I have to say, one of the things I love with Star Trek is that they develop it. Like I love that you brought up DS9 because I actually like, like you said, I'm kind of disappointed with earlier Star Trek and how they didn't engage as much with like, okay, so what happens actually in a post-scarcity culture? Like, how does that affect, how does it affect that? But then they're like, oh, we're going to push it. And I'm like, yes, that's what we like. Keep pushing it, pushing it further. Well, I was going to say, I love the fact that they like have this machine that can make anything, but at the same time they recognize that's, I mean, that's fine, but that's not the real deal. And and there is this great respect still for like doing it the real way but you do get the sense that like everything from the replicators are are basically like pretty good frozen meals but still right or you even or even if it is identical there's just that respect for craft right Right. yeah and i feel like that choice in the storytelling says so much about about us and and the viewer culture that they expect and, and the writer's culture because they know that food's important to people and that in a show where we're watching people's lives, we want to see them eat. We want to know what they're eating. And they want it to feel like a good thing, not like a, a dystopian thing where, ah, yes, you get your your meal cube and that's and that's it. That's all you need for the day. Like, that's not the rosy future that Star Trek imagines, even though they have the technology where they could absolutely do that. You absolutely could replicate just, okay, here's everything I need for the day in the little thing. Mm. One of my favorite gags, um, if you've ever watched the old like, Mystery Science Theater show, yeah. that there was there was the, the brain guys who had evolved beyond the need for bodies, even though they all still had bodies. Yes. And one of the things <laughs> was that they, they, they only needed food pills. Right. And they're like, wow, you only need like one pill a day. And they're like, well, you'd be pretty light with, with one. You'd, like, <laughs> so like two or three. And they're like, two or three bowls full, sure. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> and I'm like that's so you know, cute. The 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 imperfect element <laughs> yeah. of like sure you can replace food, but you can technologically satisfy your body's physiological requirements, but that's not the same thing as what you need in terms of like taste and texture and pleasure. Yeah, or or would it be? And like in some ways, I'd kind of almost welcome an exploration of like you know how how would a culture change if you truly didn't need food mm. like would would everyone still prefer to eat or would some people be like i got others to do with my time like those people who who forget to eat lunch i honestly think right. i eat way you less know? like i i just <laughs> it is not a top level interest for me honestly but wow. there would still be time like i would still want the option like to occasionally like i think my breakfast and lunch i could be like ah, i'm too busy this is fine but like dinners would be a bigger deal because that's when I tend to want like a richer, fuller meal. And I would still want to be able to bake cookies sometimes because that's just an activity I enjoy doing. I, I wouldn't want the pills to take that away from me. It's like, no, I don't want a chocolate chip cookie pill. I want I want to go bake some cookies. Well, and like sharing that with people. I mean, that's what DS9 does such a beautiful job, job, job of with like dinner parties and um, the way that, you know, that episode when um, Rom finally gets an engineering job and he, like, goes into Quark's for his pre- breakfast and then he tries to, like, eat the same 
as O'Brien. Yeah, there's there's such like a there's such like a intimate culture exchange. I remember also there's the bit where like Rom is put on like second shift for the first time and he's all excited and they're like ordering I forgot what they're like they're ordering some kind of coffee. It was like, Oh, is is that what we drink? Is that what we we have on second shift? Then then that's what I'm doing. And so he's just no. embracing the idea that whatever food they eat, no, Rom. Your, so maybe your froggy digestive system can't handle that. Which is one thing that they never, like, they sort of hand wave yada yada on all Star Trek's is the idea that, like, one alien species food, like, it just might not work for you at yeah, all. Yeah, like, what, what about <laughs> with the, like, their version of lactose intolerance, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> or or, like, or this, <laughs> this strange meat from another planet. Like, can your enzymes, in fact, break that down? Or mm. are you going to have a real uncomfortable night after having that particular right. that particular meal god that's a great point that's a really great point we're, we're gonna assume something about i don't know maybe the replication process replaces digestive right enzymes and other just changes, just changes the protein coating you're constantly taking probiotics that can handle everything it looks it looks like a cheeseburger however <laughs> It's it's not quite because we switched it up a little. Well, what's happening? I forget about the like. Why can everyone understand one another? Isn't there like something in terms of like? There's like the universal translator. The universal translator. I'm gonna. There's there's universal probiotics. If you guys have some, that would be great. You know, I'm like 39 this summer, and I just can't digest it all. The way I know, I know, I can't eat onions anymore. Oh, it's no. terrible. Oh, that's I'm so gonna, sad. I'm, we're gonna go into like the old day thing. I can't eat onions anymore. But yeah, like raw onions, I'm just miserable for like the rest of the day. I'm so sad for you. I love onions. <laughs> I'm really pumped to have a Chicago hot dog while I'm in town. I think they're one of the best like regional things in our country. But no, that's like an awesome thing too, like regional foods, right? Like regional foods, yes. And we're so proud of it, right? Like the Chicago hot dog is like that is that's that's it's very specific, and everyone's pizza, like yeah, the barbecue wars in the South, like mm-hmm. oh yeah, and I mean, and to a degree, that's the walls have come down on regionalism to a extent. Like there's still that sort of regional pride of like what's a real Philly cheesesteak and things like that, but like your ability to be in a different part of the country or a different part of the world and get the things you need to at least accurately make that is infinitely better now than it was say 30 years ago like you know you when i moved to texas you know my roommate and i were just like we just can't get real italian sausage here like it's just not an option it's just <laughs> it's just not we're just not gonna find it we're gonna find this disappointing crap that is no good. <laughs> But that has changed since since then. But like, but that was relatively common back. And I remember reading about how like Taco Bell is sort of the way that it is because like it was founded by people who were Mexican trying to cook real Mexican food. But where they were, the ingredients available to them were very limited. So it's like this is what we can do. Wow. With the ingredients on hand. Yeah. And. I think was it was was it that they, they were Mexican themselves or that it was I th- I think I remember it was even like one step removed from that that it was like the white guy who founded Taco Bell ripped off the Mexican restaurant across the street. Oh no. Who were using the ground beef and cuz that's all they could get and it was just like it's kind of funny because there's like this el- extra element of like the whole like what is authenticity bullshit. Like, yeah. What is authenticity? Like did you whether whether it was actually people you know, of Mexican descent creating this or someone who ripped off someone of Mexican descent creating this. The reason it looks the way it is is because somebody of Mexican descent was like, these are the ingredients that I can find and this is how I'm going to make the foods that I can make, that I want to make. Can use my ground beef and my iceberg lettuce. Yeah, which is also, I think, why the various, you know, popular Chinese dishes here in America are the way that they are for the, for the exact same reason of like, this is what we can do with what we have on hand and that these white people will actually eat and buy so that we can make money. <laughs> can I tell you all a world building joke that's a Jewish joke? 
Please do. Yes. Yes. <laughs> great, great Bubby's brisket is the best brisket. Yeah. And she always cut it in two parts. And when you ask her daughter why, she'll say, oh, it's because when you cut the meat in two parts and cook it in two pans, you get all this nice, like, caramelized, brown, crispy parts. And then her daughter says, no, 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 great Bubby did that because when you cut it and put it in two different pans, you get a lot more of the drippings. And then finally, somebody talks to great, great Bubby, and great, great Bubby says, back in the day, I didn't have a big enough pan, so I cut it in two parts. And now we always cut it in two parts. There you go. But that, I mean, there's, there is a lot of truth to that also, that so many, like, food traditions we have are based on various, like, scarcities or limitations yeah. that existed 100 years ago that don't really apply anymore. Like, you know, in Mexican cooking, a lot of people will still soak their beans before they cook them. The only reason you need to soak your beans is because you have limited amount of wood for the stove and you can't be just having them cooking for three hours. So you soak them <laughs> for a while. So you only have to cook them for one hour. Uh. But like, if that's not, if you're not like working out of a wood burning stove with only a little bit of wood to work with, that's not an issue anymore. So yeah. There's no reason to do that in the here and now if you have like an electric stove. Though, though I appreciate the, the commitment to fuel efficiency. <laughs> Yeah. Truly, truly. <laughs> gonna, we're going to swing back around. Everything comes full circle. Truly. But there's no, like, this is the right way to do it, real reason, yeah. <laughs> Grandmas are the, like, I think the um, first, like, conservationists in a lot of those respects. Yes. My, my grandma, my Depression-era grandma who never threw away anything. And a lot of food stuff comes through with that. Like, I, I, like I'm going to gross everyone out, but, like... I, I keep a jar of drippings in the fridge from when I like fry things because you, you use that again. Well, yeah, you need it for baking grease. Yeah, that's right. It's, you keep it in the fridge. But that comes from like a, a era of scarcity where you don't just buy a tub of Crisco, right? Like, I mean, I don't believe my family has ever bought Crisco. <laughs> I have no idea. Like, no, I just, no, I just got a little, little, little jar. Yeah, it's a jar and you keep it in the fridge. It's what you do. The things that we learn from. From our ancestors. And I feel like a lot of our generation like didn't learn stuff. And now we're like going back and there's this whole like rediscovery process, which is kind of cool. The way that culture impacts food, you know, during these like technological breakthroughs of things being like more shelf stable, um, people really thought that that was like a healthier approach and I was, you know, brought up thinking, being told that margarine was healthier than b- butter, which I feel like was like the tale of this idea that like technology was going to like give us our time back, give us our health back. And it's like women entering the work force, your the division of labor has changed that you're supposed to now have a job and put dinner on the table. And now you have the rise of these like convenience meals that people really thought was like healthier the way that people thought that baby formula was health, healthy, healthier. Yeah. Like be- better living through technology. Right. And it's interesting too, because you hit this point kind of before, like in like the forties, fifties, sixties, when you start getting, in some ways, convenience foods, easier to make foods like Jello, And it's interesting because like the skill it took to get dinner on the table kind of decreased. So what are you going to do to prove your skill in the kitchen? I'm going to make a terrifying Jello mold to prove <laughs> just how skilled you are at, you know, what, what you do, which, which is, you know, creating a happy, healthy home with lots of Jello. My father's mother was born in 1910, 
and to graduate high school, which she probably did at 14 or 15, like graduate high school, she had to slaughter a chicken in front of her class. This was a very different high school experience. Than yeah. We had. <laughs> you know? But how, she was she the do? one. She actually, it was an amazing story that she would tell because, you know, the chicken literally ran around the yard with its head cut off and she got splattered in blood. Like, I think it was a little bit traumatic. Yeah. Well, and. And just, and just, it's amazing because, like, I mean, I'm just like the oldest. Do people know where their food comes from? Kind of right. conversation, but it's like, I mean, how, how much closer are you to your food when you're like, you know, part of your high school exam is slaughtering a chicken versus today? That is, that is not experience that most people have. No. And I guess it kind of like bringing back to the culture question, like, how close are you to like where your food is produced? Like, that's a huge variable that can kind of determine how you think about food, like how, yeah. how much respect you have for that process, how much respect you have for the people who participate in that process. Do you see it? Do you participate in it yourself? I mean, yeah. I now raise chickens and I do have a lot more respect for that whole process because it's a process. That does remind me of this unhinged Papa John's commercial that was from like 10, 15 years ago where uh-huh. like he comes out and just like, like where does Papa John's begin? And it like has like this group of people is like starts right here with like the field of tomatoes and people are acting like, like I didn't realize you actually grew the tomato. Like where the hell what did, you did you think? <laughs> the tomatoes? Like we do not have the uh-huh. replicators yet, sir. It's not just like, like the cans on the shelf in the store don't just appear that way it still comes like, from somewhere yeah but like presenting it like it was something novel right it might be processed within an inch of its life but it still came and i found that so fascinating we the think idea that, from like, a tomato to some people that's news and it's just like that they yeah. really don't think about any of the steps up to it arriving on their plate have y- y'all seen back to the future too Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. The, there, there, there is a technological advance I'm glad we did not get. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> With the There's that wonderful. Yeah, the dehydrated pizza that, like, blooms. <laughs> so funny. And they're like, you did a great job with this pizza, Mom. <laughs> you press rehydration four, and there it is. But it is funny to think, I mean, the, the, in a world-building way, the amount of space required to grow food in the first place. And to store food, like we now have the technology that food is shelf stable longer for, you know, maybe reasons that are or are not excellent when you think about the preservatives and things. But we do, we keep food in our homes longer. We need to store it. Supermarkets have so, you know, all the shelf space that's dedicated to food. It is a a, a huge component of our material world, I think, in a way that doesn't always consciously ping. But then you look around, and you're like, it's an incredible amount of space that you need devoted to food you need yeah. in, in any you know given area. I mean, as, as someone living in, in the area where they produce a lot of that, yeah, it's like most of the area surrounding me is a field of one kind or another growing something. something. Where are you? Yeah. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in Indiana. I'm like, I'm like, oh, just northern Indiana. So, yeah. Are yeah. you close to Chicago? Uh, about an hour and a half. Oh, okay. But yeah, and it's, you know, and it's, it's amazing too, not just the space, but like the labor intensiveness of some, you know, forms of growing, like vegetables take an incredible amount of labor. You know, there's like a large vegetable farm near me. And it's like, whenever I pass it, it's like, wow, there are almost always people out there working. And then there's a question of who are those people, which is a whole other layer of how we interact with food in our culture that there's... There are some people who produce food that we respect very, very much, kind of your high-end chefs and, you know, creative types. And then most of the people who are touching our food in one way or another, we don't have a great amount of respect for in our society. And that's kind of fascinating considering It's so that crucial. Yeah. Like, we need them. I mean, even on a legal level, like whenever here in the U.S. at least they passed like like labor protection laws, almost every time is like, eh, but not for farms. No, so a lot of those people are on um, like temporary work visas no. that have no prote- protections. Yeah. It's, it's even like very recently that we started excluding children from farm labor legally 
which really like uh, which really upset a lot of people you mean by the way because that was the summer job of choice was detasseling corn well uh good question mark news um iowa at least wants to send kids back to meatpacking factories so uh opportunities so it's very it's very upton sinclair yeah it sure is it sure is but no i mean i I realized a couple years ago like um during the height of the pandemic a market that my mother usually goes to just it was actually closed for for several months and then when it did come back there wasn't much in stock and at first she was like i don't understand why like i mean compared to other things it was during the pandemic she's like why has this been so hard hit and then she realized she was like the workers can't get in the country the people who work that market yeah have been excluded from coming in this season and that's why it's closed and it was just it was such a moment of like oh i'm not as far removed from from these things as i conceive myself being sometimes you know like it, it's it's weird it's our society has done a sort of remarkable job of making invisible a lot of the process of the making and creation of food in in a way that like you said devalues the people on whom we depend so critically and i think it'd be really interesting to see a lot more um speculative fiction that instead you know elevated that that segment of society to to you know to honor to really to to form a society around like no those are the high status people those those are because they are so essential it'd be interesting to see more of that in in the world building well and i think that we have this like american myth of the family arm and how it was a place where there were traditional values and women were women and men were men. And there's actually like new scholarship um, about uh, how a lot of people, especially like turn of the century were kind of like living on their own terms. A lot of women who had a lot more power and clout and were like financially in charge of farms. And then when you had like government sponsored programs like the 4-H club, that was about injecting these like traditional heteronormative uh, values into these societies where women actually had more choices and more autonomy. Yeah, and even like predating 4-H, they had this concept of like the local agricultural society that kind of like became when the extension offices came in and turned into 4-H, that's where they, they kind of started. Um, and in a lot of those women had leadership roles. And it was like the major civic organization in these small rural farming communities. And women were often very engaged um, and very engaged in early scholarship when it came to agriculture, because that was like late 19th century, early 20th century is when we kind of started being like, hey, this is something we can study yeah, and yeah. develop technique for and like bringing those people in to kind of like learn more like that. It was, I mean... Obviously, if farming is your livelihood, it becomes the major civic focus in your community as well. And just how plugged in women were to that. Yeah. I have a great picture of my my grandmother on the farm in her overalls in like 1916, 1917. So clearly not following, clearly not following, uh, you know, traditional women stay in the kitchen and wear a skirt and men go out in the fields. Like, nope, she's in the fields, like with the farm truck, with her overalls. There's a lot to do in the fields. You don't, you don't, if somebody is physically capable of doing the work, then you're, they're doing Mm -hmm. the work because you need everybody out there. Yeah. Yeah. Some of my favorite, like you look back in like 18th, 19th century art and you get a lot of art of farmers and it's like women and men equally skirts rocked up. You know, you know, yeah, bale and hay or whatever needs to happen. You go back to the medieval period and it's at harvest time. It is all hands on deck. It is men, women, children. There's a job for everybody because we only have two weeks to get all this shit in or we starve this winter. So everybody, everybody in the community, you're out there, you're doing something. Which I think brings up the interesting feature of like the seasonality of food and to what to what, to what degree is food seasonal in your world, right? 
for us in our modern world, food is, I mean, there is seasonality, but so we are bound of it. to the seasons yeah. that people, you know, were at one time or could be in a speculative world. I mean, I think about when I was a kid and you just had to accept that any apples you got in July or August were just <laughs> terrible. <laughs> and, and, but that's completely changed now. Like year round, you're going to get the same quality of produce for like, like it delights me the things that you can't get year round like um <laughs> like sour cherries you can only get mm. sour cherries you know like those like few weeks in the summer that's my favorite and type I, of pie yes and when we were um i was in germany we happened to be there right at the beginning of spargle season which is asparagus yeah and like it's a whole f- thing like i had no idea every restaurant has a special sparkle menu there are sparkle stands like on in every town there's like every sparkle <laughs> stands just selling sparkle maybe they have some strawberries and some eggs too but it's sparkle and like we ate we ate asparagus with every you know dinner for like weeks because it was fresh and it was like good and it's like the one time you can really get it and then it was gone just one day yeah. sparkle hut closed and that makes it sound very fey just (laughs) the sparkle hut packed up and disappeared overnight brigadoon disappearing through the clouds i kind of want that and everyone's pee smelled the same (laughs) (laughs) in in gabrielle hamilton's memoir she has a bit about when she's like stuck at her mother-in-law's place in rural italy that it's just mm-hmm. and it's just like that's when the zucchini is coming in and she's like you know we use words like you know locally sourced and seasonal which is great when you're running a restaurant but is absolutely <laughs> the worst when you're just stuck for three weeks in your mother-in-law's place with nothing to eat but zucchini <laughs> i have to say though zucchini is in my top five favorite veggies i like it a lot i like it more than i think most other people she loved she loved it before that three week period, but Oh, the burnout. Yeah. My grandfather always said you can tell like the loneliest man in town in like a small town where everyone has a garden, you can tell the loneliest man in town because he's buying zucchini at the grocery store. Because oh, that's so sad. <laughs> when the zucchini comes on, we're all trying to like offload it. Like you want some zucchini? I love so. that. Oh my god. Whoa, that's great. I mean, I feel like I would be remiss not to say, too, that, um, you know, before European colonizers came to this country, there was a level of, like, abundance in terms of plants and in terms of, like, fish and deer and buffalo and all of these um, things that you can hunt that I don't even think like most people can conceive of like how much there was and what, uh, you know, so many Native American cultures working with the land, understanding the land, being like spiritually connected to it. And then this European farming culture that really grew out of like, you know, like feudalism, where the land is much more something that you're supposed to um, like tame and how... Uh, a deep understanding and a spiritual understanding of perm- permaculture meeting like monoculture, um, which is just such a less productive way to f- farm yeah. and really like strips all of your res- res- resources. <sighs> yeah. That yeah. ramble um, yeah. is 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 only that. I just uh, I feel like we have to acknowledge how um, fucked up our food systems are, especially when they've grown out of this like puritanical approach of the land is something that we need to make submit to to us. Yeah, but also the crops. Like how many different breeds of corn or how many different breeds of potato are there but like they've you know reduced 
just this yeah. kind of corn, just this kind of potato. Right. No, no, let's just <laughs> plant tobacco across an entire state. <laughs> and what's fascinating, too, is like even even the white folks throughout the 19th century, early part of the 20th century, were planting like a variety of, of different like kinds of tomatoes, kinds of squash, kinds of all these heirloom varieties, right? And then we, so like we even took the concept of farming and then we industrialized it. Yeah. And right. took the, the, just the variety of what exists and narrowed it down to like basically what's going to grow the fastest with the least resources and travel really well. Because we, we brought the whole concept of truck fa- farming into it. Yeah. Right. So it's like it, it we we we've been like kind of like narrowing this whole time and like I'm fascinated by the whole concept of like the you know the folks who are are maintaining heirloom vegetable varieties and heirloom um like conservation of livestock. Yeah. Like these, you know, like the fact that we kind of decided like there's one kind of chicken that we're going to raise for meat. And if you eat chicken in this country, it is one breed that was basically like crossbred and hybridized in the 40s, the late mm. 40s, early 50s. And before that, obviously, we ate a lot of different kinds of chickens. Well, like um, things like but... carrots and bananas. Like we as mm-hmm. Americans think a carrot is one, like there's one thing. There's one idea of a carrot. It's the thing that Bugs Bunny eats. There's one kind of banana. It's this size. It's yellow. But there are so many other varieties of, of carrots and bananas. They come in different colors and shapes and sizes and and. You just never see them in your average supermarket. You may see them in really specialty locations, but yeah, you don't you don't see them everywhere. And so that's a fun world building thing. Is like or potatoes. It, yeah, like so many breeds of potatoes. So many kinds of potatoes. This is this is why I love the farmers market because you can go in and be like, "What the hell is this?" And like, it's new. It's great. Yeah. When I was in Costa Rica, like we had some potato dish that, like, whatever the local potato there, like, it was an ecstatic experience that you just do not get in it because like what is this potato it's just simply not something that exists in the united states anymore ecstatic because potatoes would make a great band name yeah i'm for it i would go see them it's funny this, this has me thinking about like one area of of food and it's actually beverage consumption that has retained and the the industry, the market still prizes that variety is winemaking. Um, mm. I, I really, I really love. I, I like um, learning about wine. I like viticulture. I like um, going to all of the local places around me and hearing like what kinds of grapes they grow. And wine grapes are something that are still so localized. Like the soil and the climate matter absolutely so much to the kind of grape you get. Um, even from the same varietals, like the 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 minerality of the soil has such an effect how much it rains and when it rains and when it stops raining in the summer like has such a huge effect and i love hearing the people who really know about that stuff talk about it and and listening to them say like yeah we're a little worried this year because it's been a dry summer but we think it's gonna be a wet september and that's gonna throw everything all off um but they still have like their different varietals there's so many different kinds of grapes there's so many more than people even think there are because like it's not just you know, Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, Merlot. Like there's just so so many, and I love learning about them. But it's also something that's changing um, because of climate change. Like what grapes you can grow in what areas is shifting, and that's something that a lot of them are having to wrangle with. Like, okay, do we need to get some hybrids in? Do we need to change the kind of grapes that we're growing in this area that we've grown grapes in for a hundred years in America, longer certainly in Europe. Do we have to start making changes based on the climate changing around us? And what's that going to do to the culture? And and the where this tangle actually got me was thinking about how that variation is still prized in something that is seen as higher culture, quote unquote, something that is more expensive, something that is not a staple of your diet the way that like a potato is. You're allowed to have this this uh, this dedication to variety in a very different way. Than the stuff that is is everyday food and drink, and that's I, right because that's so many of these th- things become markers of class, and so it's like, oh, you regular people, you only get the one carrot and the one banana, but if you go to the specialty store, you know, there's a strawberry brand in California now. 
and they're $23 for like a package of strawberries. But what they are is they're like a strawberry before they were modified to be travel stable. Mm. So they're not red on the outside and white on the inside and like firm. So you can ship them across the country. They're small and they're soft and they're sweet and they're red all the way through. And I feel very complicated about it. Um, So I have two beautiful step children and their grandparents on one side gets them these strawberries, which for me feels, it conjures like Marie Antoinette in my mind. But also, I would like to taste them. There's weird things that I spend money on, too. I don't know why I can't can't get over that, you know? There's certainly, like, ways that I spend money that other people would judge. But, like, part of it is that I don't want to try them because I don't want to have my personal concept of a strawberry fucked for the rest of my (laughs) life, you know? Yeah. 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 And and it will cuz as you're describing that, yeah, that's how the strawberries in Germany are. That's that's how, and that's England. how they all are. And, I thought I hated strawberries and, until I had English and, strawberries and they're delicious and perfect and it's how they should be. And they cost like the same amount as the ones like the the, the shitty ones here. See, this yeah, is the thing is that like, in America yeah. it becomes about status and class where if you have a country that has yeah. strong yeah. no GMO, no uh, of these like fucking crazy pesticides and like genetic modifications, you can have food that tastes the way that it's supposed to, that isn't harming your biome in your yeah. gut, that isn't harming the people that grow it. You know, though the trade-off is you only get it for a little yeah. bit of time in the year, and you can't ship it. True. Like that's the trade-off, right? Like you have to have these. You know, you can't have strawberries in January if you want the good strawberries. But what a great way to communicate something in your writing about, like, the food culture and and class differences than to say, like, mm-hmm. you know, he was amazed because he walked into, he, you know, he, he sat down to this, this person's dinner and they had three different kinds of strawberry on the table. Like, whoa, there are three different kinds. Like, those kinds of details can communicate so much else about status and power and the economic engines of your yeah. world through through little details like that. And how it's understood, because, I mean, I'm pretty sure you look at, like, 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, and that kind of variety that now we prize as being kind of an elitist thing would have been seen as, oh, you podunk person, where are you buying your vegetables that you still have the funky colored carrots and the lemon cucumbers? You're not shopping at the supermarket, you're growing it yourself or buying it on the local market, and that's considered like And now we've made now know. we've made that bougie. We've made that now we've completely like, switched yeah, it. Uh, yeah. I bet you don't even make jello molds, what? I was just saying my family cooked from scratch because it grew out of a like we're not going to pay for these convenience things it was such a status thing when I went into like a friend's home and they had like little Debbie snack cakes or Sunny D or something I was like wow you know um and really it has cycled back to if you have the time to cook your food however simple from, from scratch it like means that you're like, um, that you're maybe like financially more secure. And of course, the very wealthiest have someone else do that for them. <laughs> having <laughs> having the in-house cook and, and yeah, like. I know, do you ever watch, um, I watch videos now on Instagram of these celebrities, personal sh- chefs. It's like a wild Piran to um, what that would be. Oh, and there's things that like 
try to get the the aspiring classes to get a taste of what that would be like, like the like the HelloFresh boxes and the food delivery services that like it's not cooked for you. It's not it's not as 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 low class as a, a microwave meal, but it comes pre-diced for you and everything's like the hard work's been done and you can just do the easy part. And that that feels very like trying to be like those kinds of people who have that either that much leisure or that much money but you don't so we're going to give you this tool that makes you feel like you do like it's a very food and capitalism are so intertwined and in just increasingly increasingly weird and and probably psychologically bad for us ways psychologically and nutritionally bad for us really just bad for us probably. on every possible just bad just bad level. but on the other hand <laughs> i do enjoy that I don't have to grow and, you know, cook my own food because I am not good at it. <laughs> at either half of that equation. So it's... Yeah. True. Super true. Yeah. Mm. Though at the same time, food has always existed also in community, right? I mean, true. that you've always had the element of community, um, I, even though we kind of had this, like, American idealized version of everyone was a farmer and grew all their own food and did it all themselves. Like, like the, not really anybody, like very rare exceptions of like frontier people doing that. But like the idea of like what dependency you do have on what kind of community for your food is kind of interesting, right? Cause we've, we have like blown it out to the point that our entire society is kind of self-dependent on this, you know, industrial capitalist model of food, but any, any, time place imagined place yeah. that you pick there's going to be some kind of interconnectivity and dependency when it comes to feeding yourself whether it's the communal mill or the communal you know the baking oven that that was shared or at my one of my favorite things the romans had fast food restaurants like the, the desire to have mm -hmm. that convenience and sometimes the necessity of that convenience explain you, please oh you don't know oh, this is oh, no what? <laughs> yeah the romans you just made Cass up, so happy i do it's one of my favorite things um, the Romans had fast food restaurants. They, they, um, Thermopyleums were just little like um, street side markets, and and they've uncovered a couple of them in Pompeii and everything. And they look like like cafeteria counters, and they would have basins full of like nuts, vegetables, maybe a you know a pottage that you would like you know put in a little cup. Um, but often they would also give you like um, you know you'd scoop out the bread and put things in the bread. Um, you could get little packages of of nuts to take with you. And you could get your cup of wine and be on about your day, and, and they'd have they'd have meats. And this was a necessity because most private dwellings in Rome didn't have kitchens because the risk of fire was so high Whoa. that you didn't want to put you didn't want everybody having a kitchen. You did not want everyone in that society having a fire going inside their home. So most apartment buildings had no cooking facilities whatsoever. But you'd have the Thermopylium on the corner. And there'd be the baker across the street and you could take, you know, you could take your daily allotment of, of you know, bread and dough and whatever and take it over there and they'd bake it for you. But most of your food you got out on the street. Most people, the average people of Rome, ate from these kinds of fast food locations most of the time. It was only the really, really wealthy people that actually had food prepared in their homes. And I just, it's, it says so much about the, the status levels, but also the material necessity of living in a very densely packed city in a time before fire suppressants existed. <laughs> <laughs> so did people have meals with each other? Yeah, very much. Uh, for the Romans, eating was a public thing. Most of life was public because once again, most people were living in very, very small rooms. It, you can, and you can walk through some of these in, in Rome and in other excavated cities. Like your home, if you weren't rich, was very, very small. You probably shared it with other people. It was a very small room. Um, so people ate on the street. They ate at the Thermopylium. They ate um, at their businesses. They ate wherever they happened to be. Very, very public. Except once again, the um, the very, very wealthy people had their dining rooms. And to have a dining room with its three couches and everything was a very big status marker. Wow. That, that yes, I am wealthy enough to dedicate a space in my house specifically for eating in. So it's like my boyfriend early in my New York time who I opened his stove and found that's where he kept all of his jeans. 
yeah. yeah. There was like, not any cooking there's, happening. There's a, there's a better use for this space. <laughs> yeah. In the way that my life is running. Yeah, exactly. Wow. I mean, in this last, like, even through, like, like 19th century England, that the stoves were really more for heating than for cooking. And one of my favorite little moments in A Christmas Carol by Dickens is that the poor people are all taking their Christmas goose or whatever to the baker to use their ovens because they don't have a way to bake their food at home. They have a crappy stove that you can heat things up on top of it, but you can't actually, you know. So even in like, you know, this expansion of like Victorian, you know, London, which was kind of a sprawling place, there's still this like community interdependency of like, can use the, can use the oven, right? Here's a few coins, stick my goose in there. So this, this gives me a question about your book, Kana. Yeah. Do people have kitchens in their homes or how does that work? I mean, it's different for different people. That was part of what I really wanted to make sure to achieve. I didn't want there to be just one way that people approach, even people that um, are of the same religion. And there's like a few in, in the novel. I wanted there to be different like sex and approaches. So there's some people that only like drink their nutri- nutrition. People have in- interpreted one hotly debated part of scripture against che- chewing. Um, so it's a lot of smoothies and like nutritional gruel and that kind of stuff. Um, and then there are some people that it's like you can have what's called like a modest meal. So it shouldn't be anything flashy, but it's done at home with your family behind closed doors. And those are the people because it's a very intimate thing that can see you swallow and chew. And then... There's other people who can eat in a kind of semi-public manner behind, like, screens, like privacy screens. And then at one point in the novel, you go into the lives of the uber, uber wealthy who are finding all kinds of ways to, let's say, have your cake and and eat it too. To flip the metaphor, that sounds very eyes wide shut. Yeah. (laughs) There's some very... um, I think that a lot of the food in the book sounds really great and sounds like things that I would love to taste and try. And then there's a few things that the like uber wealthy do that is sort of jello mold-like. Like they're stretching the scripture about (laughs) having solids. So there's a lot of like aspic and like a jello mold that's maybe made (laughs) with something like gin that will get you drunk at the same time. But it was very, very fun for me to think about like all the different permutations. And then when you go into, you know, there's an indigenous culture in the book that does not have religious food shame and that's the culture that's being like dominated so they still have like a thriving restaurant culture but it's all underground it's all black market Mm. so then when characters who were brought up in the dominant food shame culture go into these spaces where people can just have a meal to get together all those things that it brings up I love that it has all those levels because that, I think, is what makes any piece of world building feel real and feel like something that has developed over time. You know, it didn't just pop into existence because the author said, aha, I have a concept. That is what makes it feel like something that developed naturally because any any taboo, any cultural norm is malleable and, and changes over time in response to different pressures on the society. So that's really, really cool. Really cool. Like a slow breeze. (laughs) Nice.
Yeah, it's been so fun to talk to talk food, to talk food culture. I feel like you can talk about food forever. So if you ever want to come back and do food two point food two point oh three point oh four point oh whatever, um, that would be a ton of fun. It, it is a topic we keep coming back to because it is so fundamental. It is, and it touches so many things. It touches everything. But before we um, before we close out with our guests, we invite our guests to give us a little piece of trivia for the worlds that we are building together um, on air. And um, we have received so many delightful gifts from our guests. Um, it can be something having to do with this episode or completely, completely off on its own thing. So by trivia, do you mean the little bit of world building? Yes. Yes. A little piece. So, at one point, I think there should be a present of some sort of uh, little sack or pouch. And when someone has a long, arduous journey, they reach inside the pouch, and the pouch contains, like, psychic gum. And the, the gum, when you chew it, will uh, allow you to taste and feel not really physically, but like mentally nourished by whatever you're thinking about. So you have to be very careful when you chew it. Oh, yeah. Because it can be bad. But if your mind is in a healthy place and you just need a little bit to get you to the next part of your journey, the psychic gum can really help in a pinch. I so love it can that. Be like, it's like the warmth of nostalgia, but if you're like in the wrong mindset, it can also be like, like, do you remember that time that you said the one stupid thing in front of that person <laughs> 15 years ago? What does that taste like? Like regret. I love it. This, this feels like a combination between like Willy Wonka and Lembus bread. And that's fantastic. And, and a little bit of like the psychic paper from um, Dr. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. What a fantastic invention. Yeah. We just did uh, Paso fur. And there's so many parts of the Passover Seder that are like, and now we will chew this thing that tastes bad and think about how we <laughs> suffered. <laughs> <laughs> and how and how does that make you feel? <laughs> yeah. Kind of great? I don't know. Maybe that's like uh, the cold shower thing. Maybe um yeah. a little meditation on lack is positive sometimes. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. Thank you all. I could talk to you all night. Hi you! Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building Vermascus and helping us overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up on May 24th, where we're joined by Krithika Rao to talk about integrating character into worlds. And if you want to know more about your hosts and the fantastical books we write, including Rowena's latest, The Fairy Bargains of Prospect Hill, Cass's Avon Cycle, or everything in my Meridane Saga, links to all of that information is on our website at worldbuildingformasochist.podbeam.com We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at worldbuildcast, and our email is worldbuildcast at gmail.com we also have a Discord chat room linked on the About the Show page of our website if you want to come and chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts.